what is accounting and why does accounting exist? Those are the two questions of the ages. I'm sure you've thought about them for years. Let's find out what accounting is and why it exists. First, exactly how old is accounting? Well, let me tell you, it's old. Clay tokens have been found in Mesopotamia dating back to 7,000 years ago that are a primitive form of accounting. It was simple. A farmer would say, all right, let's get some clay tokens to represent how many sheep I have and how much wheat I have and how many goats I have and a big black stone to represent a cow or whatever. And we can keep track of our inventory of farm produce with these simple tokens. And we can compare what we got this year to what we had last year so we can start to make some simple decisions and some comparisons. Then somebody came up with the idea, rather than have these little rocks and stones, let's start making notations on clay tablets or with chalk on a wall. Is bookkeeping the earliest form of writing? I think so. How crucial is accounting? Accounting, we see here, underlies all of modern civilization. So what exactly is accounting? Well, first, it's quantitative. You knew this. It's numbers. I love numbers, and so do you. Accounting is all about numbers. Second, accounting is financial in nature. That means money. Numbers about money. Our two favorite things right here, they're in accounting. Third, accounting is meant to be useful. Now, there's a whole field of study in accounting theory. And in another day, in another place, we could talk about accounting theory. But really, the fundamental purpose of accounting is to be useful. It's a very practical field of study. Useful for what? That's the fourth aspect of accounting, useful in making decisions. Accounting helps you use the past right now in the present to change the future. Accounting is quantitative, numbers about money to help people, you and me, make better decisions. That's accounting. There are four kinds of accounting, or I'll call them flavors of accounting. First, the most fundamental type of accounting is bookkeeping, just the routine gathering of the information, making sure that everything gets recorded. Because if it doesn't get recorded, we'll never know about it. So bookkeeping, gathering the information systematically. The second flavor of accounting is called financial accounting. This is reporting to people outside your organization. Summary reports, not the details. It's not people who are there every day, but it's people who want to know how you're doing. So give them a report of what economic resources you have. Did you make money last year? Did you lose money last year? Just summary reports to people outside who might be thinking of loaning you money or might be thinking of investing in your company. That's called financial accounting, reporting to outsiders. The third flavor of accounting is managerial accounting. Those are the detailed secret data that individuals use inside their organizations to make decisions, detailed decisions. Should I raise my prices? Should I stop selling shirts and start selling shoes instead? Should I build my factory in Wyoming or should I build it in Alabama? Those detailed decisions that business people and people running organizations make every day. And this is stuff that just they know. They don't reveal this to outsiders. It's secret information. That's called managerial accounting. And finally, the fourth kind of accounting that some of you have an uncomfortable relationship with is income taxes, the accounting that makes sure that you are in compliance with the law, and that is the fourth flavor of accounting. Bookkeeping, financial accounting, managerial accounting, and income taxes, those are the four flavors of accounting. Let's start with bookkeeping. All accounting begins with bookkeeping. 
you've got to get the information down and then you can start to organize it to make better decisions. So bookkeeping is where it all begins. Let's do a thought experiment. Let's invent in our minds a catastrophe movie. The catastrophe movie is this. A space virus comes, infects Earth, and destroys all novels that have ever been written. Tom Sawyer, gone. Gone with the wind is gone with the wind. They're all gone. Could you then function the next morning knowing that all novels had disappeared overnight? Well, you'd feel horrible, a tragic cultural loss. But if you went to the bank to get some cash out, okay, fine, you've got some cash here. If you went to the store to shop, everything's working fine there. Everything is working perfectly. Everyone's feeling sad because of the cultural loss, but society could continue to function even if all novels ever written disappeared overnight. All right, let's roll back the tape and do another thought experiment. Let's imagine that a space virus comes and destroys all bookkeeping records on Earth overnight, everything, all bank records, all records that all companies have of the inventory that they have on the shelves of their stores, all dry cleaning records, everything, all those records are gone. Could we continue to function as a society? Go to the bank and say, I would like to withdraw $100. The bank would then tell you, well, we don't have any records. We don't know whether you've got any money here or not, so we're sorry. Go to the dry cleaners to pick up your dry cleaning. They'll say, well, we've got a bunch of clothes in the back. They're in a big pile, but we don't have any records on what belongs to whom. Society would cease to exist. Societal gridlock. We wouldn't be able to do anything. Is bookkeeping more important than the collection of novels that have been written? No. They serve different functions. But without novels, society can continue to function. Without bookkeeping, we're shut down. Bookkeeping underlies modern society. At its heart, bookkeeping is about collecting information, getting things recorded. Because once events are recorded, then we can organize those events and start making decisions. But you've got to have a system in place to collect that information. That's bookkeeping. For example, Walmart has 10 billion customer visits per year. 10 billion per year. If Walmart doesn't have an organized bookkeeping system in place to keep track of what those customers bought, how much they paid, do they need to order new things, what do they need to do, which stores are running out of which things, all Walmart can no longer function as a business with so much activity, 10 billion visits per year. Walmart needs a good bookkeeping system. Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is proud to proclaim that they sell 650 billion servings of Coca-Cola per year. That's 100 servings of Coca-Cola for every man, woman, and child on the earth. You should ask yourself now, did you drink your share last year? That's 100. Did you drink 100 servings of Coca-Cola? Well, if Coca-Cola is going to have every man, woman, and child on earth drinking 100 servings of Coca-Cola in a year, they better have a good bookkeeping system to keep track of what people buy, where they buy it, are sales going up, are sales going down, what are their different products around the world. Coca-Cola needs a sophisticated bookkeeping system to collect information because 650 billion servings, you can't keep track of that on the back of an envelope. You've got to have an organized system. Google. Google is the most visited website on the internet and they have between 1 trillion and 2 trillion searches per year. How does Google make money? Google makes money by charging advertisers for customer views or customer clicks. Well, how can Google make money? How can they charge those advertisers unless Google has a system in place of keeping track of the number of clicks and what people clicked on? Just think about it. It's a really daunting task. The Google search engine is awesome. 
the Google bookkeeping system is equally as awesome. Without bookkeeping, Walmart, Coca-Cola, Google could not continue to function. It seems mundane, bookkeeping, just collecting the information, but that's where it all begins, with bookkeeping. Let's make this more personal. Let's not talk about Google or Coca-Cola or Walmart. Let's talk about you. Think about you and your personal budget. Let's focus in on your food budget. How much did you spend in the past 12 months on food? Now, let's think about this. Would you like to know the answer to that question? Yeah, you would. Because if you're trying to watch cost, budget a little bit better, you'd want to know how much did you spend on food? That's the starting point. The most honest answer for most of us, for me, for example, is I'm not sure I know how much I spent on food last year. I could use a better bookkeeping system. If I want to start making decisions and changing my behavior with respect to how much money I'm spending on food, I first have to have a system in place where I keep track of it. That's the starting point of any kind of budget-conscious behavior with respect to food. It starts with routine bookkeeping, basically writing things down. Simply stated, bookkeeping is the preservation of a systematic, quantitative record of an activity. And until you have a record of an activity, you really can't make any sophisticated decisions with respect to that activity. You got to get it written down. You got to get it recorded. Once that happens, now we can start to make more sophisticated decisions. We can use the past to help us make better decisions for the future. But it starts with getting things written down. That's bookkeeping. The second flavor of accounting is financial accounting, reporting the results of a business or an organization to people outside that organization. It's summary information given to outsiders, financial accounting. Let's consider the case of a person applying for a loan, a mortgage loan, for example. You want to buy a house. I just went through this not long ago. So you go to the mortgage company, say, I'd like to have a mortgage loan so I could buy this house. Well, here's what they do. They ask you to verify your income. You got to give them W-2 forms and all kinds of paperwork to confirm what your income was in the most recent year, actually the most recent several years. They also ask you to verify what things you have. Accountants call these things assets. Do you have a house? Do you have a checking account? Do you have any investments? Let's get those all listed down. Do you have any obligations? Do you have any credit card obligations? Do you have any other loans? We want to see all those things. The loan company wants to verify your income. They want to verify the economic resources you have and the economic obligations that you have. Basically, you are asked for personal financial statements. You're not telling the bank or the lender everything that you've ever done. You're giving them a summary of what you've done through a summary of your income, some of your assets, some of your obligations. This is financial accounting. So what are the benefits to providing these personal financial reports when you're applying for a loan? Well, the benefits to the lender are obvious. The lender wants to know whether you're going to be able to pay them back. So they want to see, are you making money? Have you made money steadily over the past few years? Do you have assets? Do you have resources? Do you have an investment account? Do you have cash in the bank? Do you not have too many other loans, too much credit card debt? So the benefit to the lender is very clear. It helps them to be more able to forecast the probability that you're going to be able to repay the loan. So that's great for the lender. What about for me, the borrower? Well, imagine if you weren't allowed to provide financial information. You go into the lender and say, I'd like to borrow some money. Well, we'd like to know. No, you can't ask anything about me. You just have to lend me the money. 
Well, that makes it a much more risky proposition. Lenders are going to be much less likely to loan money to anybody if they can't verify your income, can't verify your resources. So by reducing the uncertainty of the lender, it makes it easier for me, the borrower, to borrow money. And also, if I'm a creditworthy borrower, if I've been prudent, if I've saved money, if I've got some resources, it gives me an opportunity to reveal that. I want to reveal that to the lender to make it even more likely that they'll give me a loan. So this process of providing personal financial statements to a lender when getting a loan benefits the lender, they can make better decisions, benefits the borrower because the borrower can reduce the uncertainty to the lender and therefore make it more likely that they'll get the loan. This is financial accounting. A balance sheet is a very fundamental report. It's a list of an organization's resources, accountants call those assets, and an organization's obligations, accountants call those liabilities. So the assets, how much cash do you have? How much do you have in land? How much do you have in trucks and equipment? Those would be a listing of a company's resources. Obligations, how much money have you borrowed from a bank? How much do you owe in taxes? How much do you owe your employees and wages that you haven't paid yet? Let's see all those obligations. So that's a fundamental report for any business. What do you have and what do you owe? We call that a balance sheet. Next fundamental financial report is called the income statement. How much money is this company making? Well, anybody wants to know that. If I'm thinking of loaning money to your company or investing in your company, I need a report of how much money you're making. The balance sheet and the income statement are fundamental reports that are provided by organizations, by businesses, to people outside the company so those people outside can decide, should we loan that company money? Should we invest in that company? It's not all the details of the operations of the company. It's a summary. It's a balance sheet. It's an income statement. The third basic flavor of accounting is managerial accounting. It starts with bookkeeping. We have a system in place to gather the raw data. Sometimes we need to communicate some of those data to people outside the company. That's called financial accounting, communicating with outsiders. More frequently, we need to use those data internally to make internal decisions. That's managerial accounting, the accounting data that are used internally to make daily decisions. When I say managerial accounting, I want you to think details. I want you to think inside the company. I want you to think secret. I want you to think daily. These are the data that people inside an organization are going to be using intensively on a daily basis to make those daily decisions. Hey, we're selling blue shoes. Should we start selling black shoes? We're selling children's clothes. Should we start selling adults' clothes? We're selling strawberry ice cream. Should we start selling chocolate ice cream? We've got a factory here in Nevada. Should we also build one in Illinois? Those detailed daily decisions that any organization has to make every day, those decisions are made using managerial accounting data. In fact, if you've ever been involved in any kind of organization, worked in a company, been involved with a charitable organization, you've used managerial accounting data. You might have provided input into managerial accounting reports. You've probably used managerial accounting reports. It's what people use all the time to make decisions with respect to an organization. And here's the thing. These data are not things that you're going to share with outsiders. See, financial accounting is built to be shared with outsiders. Managerial accounting? No. Inside. Secret. It's the stuff that we use internally to make decisions. And here's the interesting thing about managerial accounting. If done well, managerial accounting can be a competitive tool. 
it can make your company beat your competitor in the marketplace. Now, I could tell you're a little skeptical. Accounting be a competitive tool. Managerial accounting can be a competitive tool. Let's think of an example. We've got two soup and salad restaurants. Let's put them right across the street from one another. One side, we've got soup and salad restaurant number one. On the other side of the street, we've got soup and salad restaurant number two. So these are really competitors. They both serve exactly the same soup and exactly the same salad. They're not competing based on quality of food. So how are they going to compete? Well, accounting at restaurant number one is very traditional. They don't do anything fancy. They just want to make sure they get their bills paid. They want to make sure that their employees get paid on time. They really, even though it's a soup and salad restaurant, they've got a meat and potatoes accounting system. Very traditional. Now, you and I are over here in restaurant number two. We know that managerial accounting can be a competitive tool. Here's what we do with our accounting system. We use bookkeeping to gather the data and then we organize the data. That's what managerial accounting is, organizing all these data we've got in our company. We know, for example, item by item, how much each item on our menu costs. You come on to our soup and salad restaurant and order tomato basil soup, we know exactly how much it costs us to prepare that, the raw materials, and to cook it and serve it. We know all the costs. And if we know all our costs, we know whether we can afford to give customers a 20% off coupon or a 30% off coupon or a two for one. We know exactly how low we can go with our prices and how big our discounts can be because we know what our costs are. We know by hour, by minute inside our business, what people are buying and when they're buying it. We know how much tomato basil soup is sold between 11 and 12 every day and how much is sold between six and seven in the evening every night. We know that. That makes it easier for us to target our promotions to our customers. We also know when do we need to have more staff here and when can we afford to have fewer staff because we know exactly by the minute inside our business when people are there. We know our customer demographics. We've probably got a system set up where customers can get points by registering with us and providing us their address and their email address. So we know a little bit about our customers and we keep track of what they buy. So since we've got their email address and we know what they like to buy, we can send them little email coupons. Hey, come in, we're running a special on your favorite tomato basil soup, 60% off. Bring a friend and your friend will also get 60% off. We can target our sales efforts at individual customers based on their individual preferences. Now you say, wait, stop. This is marketing. This is advertising. No, nah, it's marketing or advertising standing on the back of a good managerial accounting system. It's the managerial accounting system and the data involved with it that make it possible to target our individual customers. You know the frequently ordered combinations. You know that when somebody comes in and orders tomato basil soup, they're probably going to have for dessert that strawberry cheesecake. So package those together. and Give people a discount for ordering both of them at the same time. You know all this stuff. Meanwhile, the poor person trying to run restaurant number one across the street, all their internal accounting system tells them is how much they're supposed to pay their employees this week and how much they're supposed to pay for their supplies when they receive them. That's all they know. Who's going to win in the long term in this competition between soup and salad restaurant number one and soup and salad restaurant number two? The one with the better internal managerial accounting system. Good managerial accounting can be a competitive tool. So how are managerial accounting data used, these internal data inside a company? Well, first, product costs. Let's say I've got a wood furniture business. Somebody comes in and orders a custom-made oak table. 
Well, in order to make an intelligent decision about whether I should sell that table or not and at what price, I need to know how much it costs me to make that table. So product costing is part of managerial accounting. Break-even analysis. Let's say I'm considering opening up a scuba shop at the local mall. Well, that's a risky thing to do, but okay, go ahead, think about it. And one of the first things you should do is this. Figure out how much you're going to have to pay your manager, figure out how much you're going to have to pay for rent, and then figure out how many customers are going to have to come into my scuba shop each month for me to break even to avoid losing money. That's an important part of managerial accounting analysis. Budgeting. Many startup businesses have been killed because they just haven't sat down and made a budget, a numerical plan on paper. Budgeting is part of managerial accounting. Performance evaluation. Some employees are doing their jobs very well. Some employees are not doing so well. We want to reward the one and not reward the other. So we need a system in place to gather the data to evaluate different parts of our company. Let's say I want to invest in a long-term project. I want to build a new factory facility in Rock Springs, Wyoming. It's going to last for 20 years. Well, that's a decision that's going to require the use of managerial accounting information. How much is it going to cost to buy the land? How much is it going to cost to buy the building and the machines? And what are the profits we're going to make? And how long is it going to last? All those data would be brought to bear in making that decision to invest in a long-term project. What about outsourcing production? I've got a production facility right now in the Central Valley of California, we'll say. But should I stop producing my product here in California and outsource it? Maybe it can be made in Brazil. Maybe it can be made in Ethiopia. There are all kinds of possibilities. Managerial accounting data are used to make those kind of decisions, outsourcing production. And finally, add a product line. I've got a nice line of children's clothing here. Should I start selling adult clothing in my store as well? Let me run the numbers on that. Watch numbers. These are the kind of decisions that are made using managerial accounting data. The fourth basic flavor of accounting is income tax accounting. Bookkeeping, gather the raw data. Financial reporting, we're reporting to people outside our company who might want to loan us money or might want to invest in our company. Managerial accounting, it's the detailed stuff that we use in our company every day to make decisions. Income tax reporting, that's accounting done to satisfy our legal obligations. So let's talk about income tax accounting. You may have heard before people talking about big companies while well, they keep two sets of books or they keep five sets of books. Well, how many sets of books does a large U.S. corporation keep? And we're not talking about doing anything shady here. Legitimately, how many sets of books does a large company keep? Any large company in the world keeps three sets of books. Of course, there's one underlying bookkeeping system that generates all the data, but then different reports are prepared for different purposes. First, there are the financial set of books, if you will. Those are the reports that are provided to outsiders, banks, potential investors, the financial reports. So that's one set of books. Next, there are the managerial accounting that we use every single day, those detailed data that we use to make decisions. You can call that another set of books. Two different ways to use that same underlying bookkeeping database used by insiders, the managerial reports. Third, we use the same raw bookkeeping data to fill out the tax reports in, to be in compliance with the law of our local governments. That can be said to be a third set of books. 
And I hope it doesn't surprise you to learn that the financial accounting income that you're going to report on your financial reports to your banks and your shareholders is not necessarily the same number as the tax income that you report to the government. You say, well, I'm shocked to hear such a thing. No, the financial reports are prepared to give economic information to potential lenders and potential investors. That's the purpose of those. The tax reports are merely designed to satisfy the law. They're two different purposes, two different sets of books. And we add the third set of books, those detailed internal managerial reports. Large companies keep three sets of books. Let me give you the conceptual idea around and about income tax reporting. At one end of the spectrum, we have economic income. Economic income is based on value changes. What am I worth? How much is my house worth? How much are my investments worth? Economic income measures the ebbs and the flows in the worth of an individual, the worth of a company. That's one extreme. But that's kind of subjective. I mean, what am I worth? Well, that's an interesting question to ask. That's economic income. At the other end of the spectrum is cash flow. How much cash did I collect? How much cash did I spend? There's no subjectivity there. That's very objective cash flow. Those are the two extremes of measuring the performance of a company during the year. The subjective value changes of economic income and the objective cash flows. Well, accounting income and taxable income fall somewhere in between. Accounting income is an attempt to get as close to economic income as we can, given the practical constraints that subjectivity has to be constrained a little bit. We call it accrual accounting. Let me give you an example of this idea of accrual accounting that's used in measuring accounting income. Let's say I earn $20,000 this year, but I'm not going to collect that $20,000 in cash until next year. I earned it this year. I did the work this year. I'm going to collect it next year. Well, do I report the income this year or next year? This year when I did the work or next year when I collect the cash? Well, the idea of accounting income, accrual income is no, don't follow the cash. Don't follow the money. Follow the effort. Follow the creation of the economic value. So for your accounting records, for financial accounting, for example, you'd report the income this year when you actually did the work. See, that's more towards the economic side of things. Let's report the economics. Did you create the value this year? That's when you're going to report the income. Taxable income, on the other hand, is towards the cash flow end of things. Taxable income is when you collect the cash, that's when you report the income. You've experienced that as you filled out your own tax return. Now, why would taxable income be closer to the cash flow objective end of the spectrum rather than the economic income subjective end of the spectrum? Well, because taxable income, it's a legal report. And I want to be able to tell whether I've obeyed the law or not. And if we're measuring subjective economic values, it's hard to tell who's right and who's wrong. Where if it's just cash flow, that's very straightforward. So it reduces arguments. It makes it so people can tell whether they're obeying the law or not. Also, there's the idea of the ability to pay. I should pay tax when I have the cash to pay the tax. Yes, I earned the income this year, but I can't pay the tax this year because I haven't collected the cash yet. Wait until next year when I collect the cash, then I can pay the tax. So that's another idea behind taxable income. The third thing, and I won't say anything more about this than this brief statement, the thing that makes the tax rules complex in any country in the world is the social tinkering that legislators do through the tax code. We want people to own their own homes in the United States. So Congress has said you can deduct 
the interest you pay on a mortgage loan on your own home. That encourages people to buy their own homes. We want people to donate to charities. We give them a tax deduction if they donate to charities. These are good things. And a tax code is an interesting way to tinker with what happens in our society. But that's what makes the tax code complicated. So here you see the simple difference between accounting income and taxable income. Accounting income is a little bit more of an economic measure. Taxable income is a little more objective towards a cash flow measure. Taxes are enforced exactions, not voluntary contributions. That's a very oft-cited quote there and is a key point. Income tax accounting is all about obeying the law. What do the laws say about how much tax I owe? Let's make sure I pay that tax. I'm not obligated to pay more than that, and it would be illegal to pay less than that, so let's pay exactly that. So income tax accounting all swirls around making sure we understand the rules and we're obeying the law. Let's dig into a little bit more detail about financial accounting. But first, a quiz. Financial accounting. Are those reports directed to people outside the business or are those reports directed to people inside the business? You're thinking, yeah, you got it. Financial accounting is directed towards people outside the business. So let's talk more about financial accounting, these reports directed to outsiders. The key external users of financial accounting data are lenders and investors the people who provide the capital to a business so that you can turn your dreams into reality. I need $100 million. Well, I'm going to have to borrow it or I'm going to have to get new investors in my business. Those are the key users of financial accounting data. Without financial accounting data, it would be impossible for companies to raise money from strangers. The financial accounting data provide that environment of trust where lenders and investors feel comfortable giving money to an entrepreneur to start a business or expand a business. So lenders, what do lenders want to know? Well, is a loan going to be repaid? It's really that simple. If I loan you $100 million, are you going to pay me back? And what data can I use to assess whether you're going to be able to pay me back? Well, tell me how much money you're making now. Tell me how much money you made for the last three years. I want to see that. That's going to help me forecast how much money you're going to make in the future. Tell me what existing obligations you already have. Because if you're already loaded up with obligations, I'm not sure I want to be one more person to loan you money. I might not get paid back. Also, tell me what resources you've got, your assets. Tell me what those are, and all those things will help me assess whether you're going to be able to pay back a loan. Investors, what do investors want to know? So investors, they're becoming your partners. They're now part owners in the company. They want to know, is this a profitable business? Have you made money the past few years? So they want to know the same thing that the lenders do because Really, this is a very important point. When you're an investor in a business, you're not buying the past of the business. You're buying the future of the business. How's it going to do in the future? So what you use the financial accounting reports for is to tell you the past so that you can use that information now to help you forecast better what's going to happen in the future because the potential for the future is really what you're buying when you're an investor. Lenders and investors, the providers of financing to a business to turn dreams into reality, those are the key external users of financial accounting data. Lenders and investors aren't the only external users of financial data. Lots of people, you and me, for example, we use financial accounting data, or at least we do now. So who? Some categories. Suppliers. If I'm going to sell to you on credit, then I want to know if you're going to be able to pay me. It's just like loaning somebody money. If you sell those people on credit, 
It's the same as loaning them money. You want to know if they're going to be able to pay you. So if you're considering entering into a long-term significant business relationship where you're selling on credit to another company, the first thing you're going to do is get their financial statements, have a little analysis done to see if they're going to be able to pay you back. So suppliers are important users of financial accounting data. Customers. Anybody who enters into a long-term relationship with a business wants to know if they're going to be around in the future. So if I'm going to be one of your customers and I'm going to start to rely on you and maybe you're giving me a warranty, employees, employees have long-term relationships with companies and employee, too often they don't, but employees should look at the financial reports of a company. Is this a strong company? Do they have a strong track record? Can I count on them? Because I'm going to give them my blood, sweat and tears. Are they going to be here in the long term? Are they financially viable? competitors, this is kind of the other side of it. Because I provide these financial accounting data and they're available to people outside my company, it's often the case that my competitors get their hands on them. Do you think that Coke wants to see the financial accounting reports of Pepsi? Of course they do. Do you think that Walmart wants to see the financial accounting reports of Target? Of course they do. Of course they look at those things. So competitors want to see where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are. They can do that by looking at these financial accounting reports. Government agencies. There are some industries, banking industry, the insurance industry, the utilities industry, companies that sell natural gas and electricity. All of those are regulated by government agencies, so they have to provide financial accounting reports to the government agencies. In addition, sometimes in some industries, people in general want to know, hey, you're a health insurance company. Are you price gouging? Are you making profits that are too large? You're an oil and gas company. We're all paying a lot of money for gas at the pump. Are you making obscene profits? We want to see those financial reports. So government agencies and people with interest in the public responsibility of companies, they'll look at the financial reports. Politicians are also looking at financial reports. If I want to make a political argument against, for example, the oil and gas industry, and I want to show that they're profiteering, I pull out Exhibit A, their financial reports. Or if I'm a politician who wants to protect, say, the textile industry in my state, I pull out the financial reports of some major textile businesses show that their profits are going down. So politicians can make a political point using the financial statements of companies. And finally, the press. The press commonly use financial reports. First, just simple background information. If I'm writing a story about Apple, I ought to tell my readers, okay, here's how much money Apple made last year. Here's how many assets they have. Here's how much cash they have in the bank. You can actually go into the details of their financial reports and find out where their income was generated, how much in the United States, how much in Europe. Yeah, I wouldn't want to use the financial reports for background. But also the press often use financial reports to trigger investigations. I'll give you an example. Let's say a company just announced that their profits have gone down by 70%. That's a financial accounting report, but that could trigger an investigation by an enterprising reporter who would say, well, why did their profits go down by 70%? So it's an investigation trigger. Lots of people use external financial accounting data, include, I hope, from now on, you. So we could write your name right down at the bottom of this screen. Financial accounting is based on these three primary financial statements. The balance sheet and the income statement you've already seen. So let's talk about those. The balance sheet is a listing of a company's assets, and its liabilities, its economic resources, the assets, and its economic obligations, the liabilities. It's a basic financial report. The income statement, how much money did you make last year? How much money did you make last quarter? How much money have you made each year for the past 10 years? 
That's the income statement. That's also important information provided to people outside the company. A statement of cash flows, we haven't talked about yet, but it's the third primary financial statement. It's a report of the cash that came into a company and a report of the cash that went out of the company. A pretty basic thing, but we're going to find out soon that the statement of cash flows is an awesome piece of work. These three primary financial statements, the balance sheet and the income statement and the statement of cash flows, they summarize the financial position and health of a company. Really, three sheets of paper summarize a lot of information about a company. That's financial accounting. Let's talk about the balance sheet in a little bit more detail. The balance sheet is built around one of the most awesome creations of the human mind, the accounting equation. There it is, assets equal liabilities plus equity. Now I can tell you're underwhelmed. You thought, oh, I was expecting a little bit more of something like E equals MC squared. Well, this is just as great as E equals MC squared. Let me tell you where this accounting equation comes from. First, the asset side. Well, you know what that is, list of assets. Here's the thing. People have been listing assets for thousands of years. I told you that there's evidence that farmers were keeping lists of assets 7,000 years ago in ancient Mesopotamia. There's no great insight there. How many cows do I have? How many goats do I have? How much wheat do I have? A list of my assets. The insight behind this accounting equation was created a little bit over 500 years ago in Italy. The traders in Venice and other traders in Italy, they had this insight. Listen. Let's keep it a list of our assets like we've always been doing, but let's also, every time we get an asset, let's write down where we got the money to buy that asset. We write down the asset and we write down the source of the financing to buy that asset. Did I borrow the money to buy the asset? Was it invested by the owners? If I borrow the money, then liabilities is the name I give to the source of the financing to buy that asset. If the money was invested by owners, I say equity was the source of the money to buy the asset. So we got the two sides of the accounting equation. The first side, the asset side, that's the real world there. You can go touch a company's assets. That's the real part of a company. The other half of the accounting equation just says, where did you get the money to buy those assets? It's the discipline of the accounting equation. It seems so simple, but this discipline is the foundation of all the sophisticated financial reporting that we now have in the world. And we've been using this for 500 years. It's an awesome invention. I tip my hat to those medieval accountants in Italy who invented the accounting equation. Assets equal liabilities plus equity. Assets, and we're also going to keep track of the sources of financing to buy those assets. So what are assets? We kind of have an intuitive sense of this. They're resources owned or controlled by a company that will provide probable future benefit. So let's take the simplest example. If you look at the balance sheet of Apple, you see they got lots of cash, a lot of billions of dollars of cash. Is that a resource that will provide probable future benefit? Yeah, cash is a good asset. That's not the only asset. If you're a financial institution like MasterCard, like Wells Fargo Bank, like Bank of America, your biggest asset is an asset we call accounts receivable or loans receivable. The asset, you're going to collect money from people in the future based on contracts that exist in place right now. So if I have a piece of paper that somebody has signed where they promise to pay me back $10,000 in the future, is that a valuable thing? Is that an asset? Sure it is. The primary asset of any bank is accounts or loans receivable. MasterCard is an example. Citibank, they have over a trillion dollars in accounts or loans receivable. That's trillion with a T. Huge asset. Money that they expect to collect in the future. 
from the people who've borrowed it from them in the first place. How about Walmart? Let's do a little mental trip into a Walmart location. So close your eyes, drive into the Walmart parking lot, get out of your car, you're walking across the parking lot, you're walking on one of Walmart's assets. They own that land. It's a Walmart asset. You walk into the building, they own that building. That's another Walmart asset. Stand in the middle of the store and look around at all the stuff on the shelves. That's called inventory, the stuff that you can buy from Walmart. Those are all very important assets for Walmart. Delta, airplanes, FedEx, airplanes, United Airlines, airplanes. These are resources owned or controlled by the company that provide probable future benefit. The things that a company uses to provide services to its customers so that their customers will pay them. These are all assets. The balance sheet also lists the liabilities of a company, the obligations that will require the probable future sacrifice, either by paying assets or by delivering some service. Now, I'll explain what I mean. So let's talk about some examples. Walmart, accounts payable. Payable is a hint there, an obligation to pay in the future. When Walmart buys inventory, they promise their suppliers, Procter & Gamble or Black & Decker or whoever, will pay in the future. We're not going to pay you cash now. We'll pay you in the future. Well, that's an obligation. And Walmart better write that down. Walmart better not just write down, hey, we just bought some inventory from Procter & Gamble. They better also write down, oh, yeah, and we owe them for it. We got to pay them later. You got to write down the asset. You write down how you bought the asset. In this case, you promise to pay it later. Accounts payable is one liability. Home Depot and Target and Walmart and almost every other business in the world has the employees work for a few weeks and then they pay them. Home Depot doesn't gather all the employees together at the end of a day and say, okay, we're going to pay you cash for whatever you earn today. No. Thanks for working for us today. We'll pay you in a couple of weeks when it's payday. So if Home Depot or Walmart or Target were to do a balance sheet at the end of any given day, they would be required to write down, okay, wages payable. How much of our employees earned that we haven't paid them yet? Another liability. Same thing works for taxes. Taxes build up slowly over time. And if you're to do a balance sheet, you better write down, okay, as of today, here's how much tax we owe that we haven't paid yet. ExxonMobil does a lot of accounting for taxes. They pay taxes of all sorts around the world. They pay property taxes. They pay income taxes. They pay sales taxes. They pay import-export fees, all kinds of taxes. And they don't pay them up in cash at the end of every day. So when they do a balance sheet, they have to list down, here are the taxes that we are going to pay them next month or a couple of months from now, sometime in the future. Long-term borrowing. Disney has some long-term debt on their balance sheet. That means money that they have borrowed that they're going to pay back sometime far in the future, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. The reason I've got Disney here is they're interesting because a number of years ago, they got some really long-term debt. They borrowed some money and promised to pay it back in not one year, not five years, a hundred years. Would you loan money to somebody on a promise that they'll pay you back in a hundred years? Well, you wouldn't do that for many companies, but you'd do it for Disney. There are only a few companies in the United States who have borrowed money on such a long-term basis, but it's listed in Disney's balance sheet. Long-term debt, a hundred years from now, we've got to pay this back. A little bit different liabilities. This last one on the list, United Airlines, unearned revenue. Think about the last time you rode on United Airlines or Delta Airlines or, or American Airlines or any other airline. Did you pay for your flight before you flew or after you flew? Before. They always make you pay before. All right. Well, they then have an obligation. If you've paid for a flight and they haven't given it to you yet, they have an obligation to give you a ride on an airplane. That's what this unearned revenue is. There are two ways to get the money to buy assets. 
borrow it, in which case we call it liabilities, or have it invested by the owners. Then we call it owner's equity. Owner's equity is the amount that owners have invested in a company for the company then to use to buy assets. Well, there are two ways for owners to invest in a business. One, the simplest way to, to visualize is the owners just say, okay, my business needs some money to buy assets. I'm just going to pull it out of my personal pocket. For my personal savings, I've done some work elsewhere. I've been prudent. I've saved my money. I'm not going to pull it out of my pocket and put it into my business. And the business will then use those assets to buy assets. We call that paid in capital the amount that owners take out of their personal savings and invest in their business or capital stock or capital contributions. They all mean the same thing. So that's one way that owners invest in a business. Another way that owners invest in a business is this. The business generates some income. Who owns the income generated by a business? Well, the owners do. It's theirs. It's their business. They own the profits. Well, the owners can choose what to do with those profits. Sometimes the owners will say, okay, my business generated some profits. I'm going to take those out or some of those out to use for personal uses, to pay tuition, to buy a boat, to do whatever. We call those dividends when owners pull profits out of the business. But more often than not, owners will say, okay, my business generated profits. I take out a little bit of dividends, but most of it I'm going to put back in the business for expansion. Use these profits to buy more buildings, to buy more equipment, to buy more inventory. If the profits are kept in the business, then the label we give to that source of owner's equity is retained earnings. Owners can invest directly. We call that paid in capital. Owners could say, let's keep the profits in the business. That's another way that owners invest in the business. Both those two things together, paid in capital and retained earnings, the sum of those two is equal to owner's equity, another source of financing to buy assets. All right, I'm a little embarrassed to tell you this, but I got to tell you the whole truth. The balance sheet is not perfect. There are some limitations. So I better tell you what those are. Better that you hear from me than from somebody else. First, when you look at a balance sheet, most of the numbers that you see are not market values. They're costs. You say, well, what's the big deal? Well, it can be a huge deal. Let's say you've got a company that has some land that it bought 50 years ago for $5,000. All right. And the land now, 50 years later, is worth $2 million. Well, what's going to be reported on the balance sheet? The amount reported on the balance sheet is the original cost, the $5,000 50 years ago, not the current market value. This often misleads people because when they look at the balance sheet, they trust the balance sheet. They love the balance sheet. They're looking at it. They have to remind themselves, this is not the current values. These are the costs. If I want to know the current value of all the assets, I need to do some other investigations that's outside the financial accounting process. So that's the first limitation. So I'm embarrassed about that. Second, probably worse, some very valuable economic assets are not reported at all in the balance sheet, especially intangible assets. Well, what are the most important economic assets of Apple? Think about this. Well, first, the logo itself, the name. Think how much would you have to pay to buy the worldwide rights to use that name, Apple. It would be tens of billions of dollars. Same thing with the logo. And even more, an intangible asset are the relationships that Apple has with all of its customers around the world. If you're an Apple user, you are loyal. And if they come out with a new product, you're going to buy the thing. That's valuable for a company to have an existing base of loyal users. That's an asset that if Apple wanted to sell its customer list, they could do that, again, for tens of billions of dollars. 
how much of those crucial economic assets, the logo, the name, those relationships, how much are they recorded at in the balance sheet? Zero. Because Apple never had to pay to buy those. Apple never had to pay anybody else to buy its name. It just developed that name. It didn't have to pay anybody else to buy its logo. It created the value of that logo. It didn't have to buy its relationships with customers. It's created those relationships itself. So the intangible assets that a company grows itself, creates itself organically, homegrown intangibles, I call them, are recorded at zero on a balance sheet. And for many companies, these assets are the most important ones they've got. The name Apple, the name Microsoft, the name IBM, the name McDonald's or Coca-Cola, all of those names are worth tens of billions of dollars. And yet they're all recorded at zero on the balance sheets of the respective companies. So accounting doesn't account for intangible assets very well at all. I'm ashamed. The combination of these two things means this. The value of a company on its books, the book value, we can say, is often not equal to the market value of a company. Those are limitations of the balance sheet. Now you know the truth. The balance sheet's great. I love it. You love it. But it's not perfect. As we know, there are three primary financial statements. The balance sheet, the income statement, and the statement of cash flows. The balance sheet and the income statement have been around for over 500 years. Statement of cash flow has only been around for 25 years, so we'll leave that one to the side. Let's just talk about a comparison between the balance sheet and the income statement, those stately old financial statements that have been our friends for over 500 years. The balance sheet, listing of assets and liabilities as of right now. What do you have and what do you owe as of today? So you could theoretically do a balance sheet any old day. Let's do it at the end of today. Let's do it at the end of the next day. It's as of a point in time. It's often spoken of as being a snapshot. The balance sheet is a snapshot as of right now. What do you have and what do you owe? The income statement, on the other hand, tells you how much you made. And if you think about that for a second, you realize, okay, how much I made what? This week? This month? This year? You have to define a period of time. So the balance sheet is as of a point in time. The income statement is for a period of time. For large companies in the United States, they are required to report an income statement every three months, every quarter. In addition, at the end of every year, they're required to report an income statement for the entire year. So those are the periods of time that income statements are required for large companies in the United States. So let's see if we've got this. Let's review. Close your eyes. I don't want you looking at anything. Just close your eyes. Which one of these two, a balance sheet and income statement, is for a period of time? Yeah, you got it. The income statement. Which one is as of a certain point in time? That's the balance sheet. Balance sheet as of a certain date. What do I have and what do I owe? Income statement for some period, a quarter, a year, a month. How much did I make? That's the difference between a balance sheet and an income statement. The income statement contains two items, revenues and expenses. Revenues minus expenses equal the net income. That's it. That's the income statement. Now, you should be saying to yourself, okay, that's not that bad. You're right. Accounting's not that bad. In fact, we can make a stronger statement. Accounting's great. Now, what does the word revenue mean? This is kind of subtle but important. Remember, revenues are the amount of assets created from the sale of goods or services. So how do companies generate assets 
through profitable business operations? Well, depends on what the business is. Microsoft, for example, generates assets by collecting it from you and me through selling software and hardware. We call that Microsoft's revenues. How does Walmart generate assets through doing business? Well, they sell products to you and me and they sell us memberships in their Sam's Club. So that's the way Walmart generates assets through doing business. So those are Walmart's revenues. Disney. Disney has five major business segments. Their media networks, their cable TV and television networks, parks and resorts, Disneyland, studio entertainment, Pixar, Marvel, the Disney Studios themselves, Lucasfilms, Star Wars. Disney has all those. Consumer products, yeah, you've still got that lunchbox that you bought when you were a kid that's got the Disney logo on that. They make money from that. And the fifth one not listed on the slide here, their interactive division. So Disney generates assets through doing business in many different ways. They're all called revenues. Revenues are ways that companies generate assets through doing business. And whatever your company is, that's the way you're going to generate revenue. Differs depending on what industry you're in. Well, there are revenues, but there are also expenses. Like what? Well, Microsoft, in order to generate those revenues by selling software and hardware to you and me, they got to pay programmers. They got to buy equipment. There are all kinds of things that they have to pay for. They got to pay for electricity. They've got to pay for maintenance on all their facilities that they have. Those are expenses. Walmart, what is their major expense? Their major expense is the cost of the goods that they sell to you and me. On average, if they sell something to you and me for a dollar, that thing costs them about 75 cents. So that's an expense. That's assets consumed in generating revenues. They also have buildings that they build and slowly wear out over time. Those are all assets being consumed in generating revenues. McDonald's, what are their expenses? Well, they have to buy the food that they sell to you and me. They have to buy the paper that they sell to you and me. They got to pay the employees that are working behind the counter. Those are all expenses involved in generating the revenues. So expenses are technically defined as the amount of assets consumed in generating revenues. Now, another way that expenses are created is by generating liabilities. For example, let's say I've got employees that work for me for the year. I pay them their wages. That's fine. Those are expenses. That's easy. But what if I also promise them a pension 30 or 40 years from now when they retire and they also earn those pension benefits this year? That's also an expense. Even though I'm not going to pay them for 30 or 40 years, they earned the benefits this year. And so I'm going to report it as an expense this year. The definition of expense in that case is when I create liabilities through doing business. Another common and unfortunate liability is environmental liability. If I'm ExxonMobil through sucking oil and gas out of the ground and transporting it around the earth, I'm going to do some damage to the environment every year. I don't necessarily have to pay to clean it up this year but I did the damage this year. Those are also business expenses recorded this year. Expenses, consuming assets, or creating liabilities through doing business, those are expenses. So the income statement, revenues minus expenses equals net income. It's as simple as that. Now this net income is the overall measure of a company's economic performance during the period. That's the one number that summarizes all the economic things that the company did. It's an economic measure. Accounting net income, we've been working for over 500 years to fine tune the accounting rules to properly measure revenues and expenses. So that number, net income, the difference between revenues and expenses for the year is the economic performance for the year. It's a good measure of a company's economic performance.
The statement of cash flows. The statement of cash flows is the baby of the financial statements. The balance sheet and the income statement have been around for over 500 years. Statement of cash flows is just this. Let's take all the cash flows, cash collected, cash paid by a company. And again, that's a pretty easy concept. Cash, we're just focusing on cash. How much cash did you collect? How much did you pay? And we're going to separate those into three categories. Operating activities, investing activities, and financing activities. And let me tell you what those three activities are. And then we'll look at examples of each one. Operating activities are the things that you do every single day. Your operations. So when would you collect cash from operating activities? If you sell some goods. If I'm Walmart, I sell you something. If you provide some services. If I'm a consulting company, I provide consulting services to you and you give me cash. So those are cash inflows from operating activities. Cash outflows from operating activities. You pay wages, you pay your utilities, you pay your taxes, you pay your interest. Those are all things that you do every single day. So operating activities, it's just the routine stuff that you do hundreds of times a day. Investing activities, here the word investing means investing in the productive capacity of the business. So cash outflows from investing activities down at the bottom here is buying new buildings, buying new land, investing, spending cash, to enhance the productive capacity of the business. Those are cash outflows from investing activities. Cash inflows from investing activities, well, when I'm done with a truck, when I'm done using some land, I sell them. I don't need them anymore. So I'm gonna sell them for some cash. Those would be cash inflows from investing activities. How often do I do investing activities? Well, occasionally, but not every day. These are not routine things. I don't go out and buy a building for my business every single day. So investing activities happen occasionally and it's investing in the productive capacity of the business. And I'm generally spending money to enhance the productive capacity of my business. The third category of cash flows, financing activities. Financing activities is just what it sounds like. I'm getting the cash to do what I wanna do in my business. I'm borrowing some money. I'm getting new investment from owners. Those are cash inflows from financing activities. Cash outflows, well, I'm repaying those loans. I am paying dividends to my owners. Those are cash outflows from financing activities. And how often do I do those things? Occasionally, not very often. So operating activities, those are the things that I do every single day, repetitively, over and over. It's what I exist for. Investing activities, I want to expand the productive capacity of my business. I'm spending money to enhance that productive activity. Financing activities, I'm getting the cash to do what I need to do. I'm borrowing money and I'm repaying it back. I'm getting cash from shareholders and I'm paying dividends to them. That is the statement of cash flows. It's only been around for 25 years, but it's been 25 awesome years. Financial accounting, focus on communicating to people outside the company, primarily lenders, and investors who are providing money to the company to buy its assets. That's the primary audience. So remember, financial reporting, people outside the company. Really, these financial reports can be thought of as three pieces of paper. The balance sheet report, the income statement report, and the statement of cash flows report. It's amazing how much information can be summarized about a company on just three pieces of paper. Think about Walmart and their 10 billion customer visits per year the results of all of that can be summarized in boom, 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 three pieces of paper, these summary reports to people outside the company. So let's remind ourselves, let's review what's on the balance sheet, three things structured around our favorite equation. It wasn't our favorite equation before today, maybe, but it is now the accounting equation. Assets equal liabilities plus equity. 
if I've got assets, I had to get the money to buy those assets from somewhere. I either borrowed it, liabilities, or it was provided to the company by shareholders, equity. Assets equals liabilities plus equity. That's the balance sheet. The income statement, revenues minus expenses is net income. Revenues, the amount of assets generated through doing business. Expenses, the amount of assets consumed in doing business. And what we would hope in a company is that you generate more assets than you consume in your business operations. That's the income statement. Statement of cash flows, the baby, only 25 years old. There are three categories of cash flows. Operating cash flows, the things that you do every day. Investing cash flows, investing in the productive capacity of the business, buying more buildings and trucks and what have you. And financing activities, getting the money to buy the stuff that I need, repaying loans, paying dividends to shareholders. Of those three, operating, investing, and financing, which one is the most important? Yeah, you remember, operating activities, because that summarizes the cash results of things that we do on a daily routine basis. Those three reports that you see right in front of you summarize everything about a company's performance and that's given to people outside the company. That is financial accounting. Managerial accounting is all about communicating to people inside the company. It's the information that's used on a detailed basis every single day inside the company. Managerial accounting, it's secret, it's detailed, it's daily. Let me illustrate the difference between managerial accounting and financial accounting with this simple example. We'll talk about Walmart again. We saw before that Walmart's sales, $466 billion. Now, that $466 billion, is that a financial accounting number or a managerial accounting number? Yeah, it's a financial accounting number. We saw it in their income statement. That's a report made available to people outside the company. So that $466 billion is that sales number is a financial accounting number. Now let's imagine for a second that you run Walmart. You're the CEO of Walmart. Let's go crazy in our imaginations here. And you're running the business. That means you're making daily decisions about what needs to happen in Walmart. And the financial accountants come and say, hey, our sales last year are 466 billion. And you say, okay, that's nice, thanks. But I'm trying to run a business here. I need to know more details about that number, 466 billion. I need that sliced and diced and I need it cut down. I need to know more specifics. I need detail. I need daily detail. So let's think, what additional things would you like to know about that one number, 466 billion? We're only talking about the sales. That financial accounting number, if you were to try to run Walmart, what additional things would you like to know about that one number, the 466 billion? I say list 10 additional things. We could list hundreds of additional things, but here's a few that I thought of. In addition to knowing that the total sales are 466 billion, I'd want to know, okay, how many of those sales were in North America? And how many of them were in Mexico and South America? And how many in Europe? And how many in Asia? I want to know it by region, by country. In fact, I want to know it by store. And I don't want to just know it by store. I want to know how much did we have last year in that same store? And what was our target for this year in that store? So did we have more than last year and do we have more than we thought we were gonna have? I want it at the store level. Now let's go down even further. I wanna know by department. Are we selling mostly groceries? Are we selling mostly children's clothing, men's clothing, outdoor lawn care kind of stuff? What are our sales specifically? In fact, let's go to specific items. 
How many of this kind of shoe did we sell? How much milk did we sell? How many bananas did we sell? How many lawnmowers did we sell? I want to know my specific items. I want to drill down to as much detail as possible because I'm running a business here. I wanted to identify my best sellers, my worst sellers. I want to make a plan. 466 billion total sales doesn't give me enough information to make a specific plan of running my business on a daily basis. How about physical location in the store? Top shelf, bottom shelf, end shelf, back of the store, front of the store. You tell me how we can influence our sales by where we place stuff in the stores. And are there some things that are safer to put in the back? People won't forget about them. And there are some things that unless we put them in the front, nobody's going to buy them. I want to know that stuff. I want to know how much is sold by seasons. What's sold in January? What's sold in February? What's sold during the holiday selling season? In fact, I want to go a little bit deeper. How about day of the week? What happened on Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, by time of day? Should we be open 24 hours? Should we even open before noon? You tell me the sales by hour, by region, by item. Tell me all this stuff. When it's raining outside, what sells? When it's hot outside, what sells? Hey, we ran a bunch of ad campaigns. I want you to show me the impact of those ad campaigns on the sales numbers. What were they the week before? What are they the week after? By payment method, how many people pay cash? How many use this credit card? How many use that credit card? Should we have our own credit card? Should we even accept cash? The demographics of the buyer, this is where it gets quite interesting because if people pay with a credit card, I've got their name attached to their list of purchases. So I know what they buy. And if they buy on a regular basis from Walmart, I can develop a pattern of purchases. And maybe it's been more than six months since they bought those certain shoes that they like, or since they bought that certain grocery item that they seem to want to buy. If I've somehow managed to get their email address from them, maybe through some buyer loyalty program, then I could email them a coupon and say, why don't you, you haven't bought bananas in six months. Here's a coupon for 50% off bananas if you buy them today. I could use this specific information to target to specific buyers. So the financial accounting number is 466 billion in sales. That's great. That's a nice number to report to outsiders. So if I'm the CEO running a Walmart, I need to know details that I can use on a daily basis to run this business. That's managerial accounting. Inside secret daily detail. I want to run through some specific illustrations of managerial accounting applications. Product costing. How much does it cost to make my product? If I'm making wood furniture, how much does it cost me to make that wood furniture? If I'm making industrial equipment, how much does it cost me to make that industrial equipment? If I'm Boeing, how much does it cost me to make a Boeing 777 aircraft? If I'm delivering a service, if I'm Southwest Airlines, how much does it cost me to get a passenger from New York to San Francisco? What does it cost? Product costing. Then we'll do break even. I'm going to open up a store location. I want to know if there's going to be enough sales for me to break even, to avoid having a loss. So we'll do some examples of break even. Budgeting, numerical planning, running your business plan out on paper first to identify any problems before they happen in the real world. Hopefully when we talk about budgeting, you're going to think about your own personal budgeting practices. And finally, uh, the last managerial accounting illustration that I want to give is performance evaluation. We'll see the key concept that is this. You get what you measure. If you measure certain aspects of performance of your employees, they're going to focus. They're going to hone in on those aspects. Performance evaluation, product costing, break-even, budgeting, performance evaluation. Let's do illustrations of each one of those.
One important function of managerial accounting is computing the internal costs of providing our products or our services. Let's do an illustration. What does it take to make wood furniture? What do you need? Well, you need some wood, but what else do you need? So we're gonna want to compute the cost of all the things required to make wood furniture. We're gonna follow the flow of cost through this company. It's August 17th, the customer comes in and orders one custom-made dining table, a beautiful piece of work made out of oak. It's about 20 feet long. They wanna be able to fit a lot of people and they want it finely honed. Maybe they want their own coat of arms carved into the top. They want a very nice table. It's August 17th and they say, okay, I'm going around to various furniture makers, describing to them the table that I want. I need a bid. How much will you charge me to make this table for me? So, okay, if I wanna make an intelligent bid, I better first figure out how much it's gonna cost me to make that table. So what's it gonna to take to make a custom-made dining table? Well, first it's gonna take the wood. In a managerial accounting setting, we call this direct materials, the actual stuff that the item is made out of. So in this case, it's wood. If I were making automobiles, it'd be metal and rubber and the other things that go into making automobiles. So direct materials, that's pretty easy to estimate. You describe the size of the table and the design. It's going to use wood that costs me about $1,000. By the way, I'm not telling any of this to the customer. I'm doing this privately in a back room on a piece of paper. So direct material is about $1,000. But the wood doesn't form itself into a table. How many hours is it going to take my workers, my skilled craftspeople, to make this thing happen? Well, again, I can estimate that pretty well. It's about 30 hours. We call these people the direct labor people. They're the skilled craftspeople who actually do the work. And it's gonna take them 30 hours, and I pay them a wage rate of $30 per hour. So that's gonna end up being $900. Okay, am I done? If I go out into the desert somewhere with a pile of wood and some workers, do I have myself a nice oak custom-made dining table? Well, no, I need some machines. And I can estimate, all right, it's gonna take me about 200 machine hours to finally plane and polish and make the wood so it looks just so. So the direct materials, $1,000. Direct labor, $900. And I wanna stop and make sure that you understand these two numbers are easy. Anybody who makes furniture can easily estimate the amount of direct materials, the amount of oak in this case that it's gonna to take to make this dining table. And the number of hours it's gonna take their direct labor hour people, the skilled crafts people to do this thing. And they know how much they pay these people. So this 1,000 plus 900, that's pretty easy. But is this it? No, it can't be it. You need infrastructure, overhead, we call it. You've gotta have a roof over your head. You gotta have supervisors. You gotta have maintenance people. You gotta have quality control inspectors. You gotta pay property taxes. You gotta have insurance. You gotta have all of this. Okay, so how much of my overhead costs? I've got my factory building here. I'm working on this oak table right here. I'm working on a children's desk over there, other people. I've got some bookcases going on over here. I've got a china cabinet over there, and I've got one supervisor kind of supervising all those jobs. How much of that supervisor's salary should be assigned to this oak table? How much of the property taxes on this building should be assigned to this oak table? How much of the wages that I pay to my maintenance people, how much of that should be assigned to this oak table right here? How can we do that? See, that's the hard part. The overhead is the hard part. Direct materials, direct labor, they come together. That's pretty easy to estimate. But the overhead cost, that's hard. And here's the thing to remember. Somebody's got to pay for these overhead costs. Who? Well, there are two choices. 
either I build it into the cost and build a customer for it so the customer pays, or I got to pay it myself. Well, I guess I could pay it for myself for a while, but then I'm going to go out of business. So I got to factor in how much overhead cost should be assigned to this particular dining table. Remember the customer came in on August 17th and wants to buy this table. Well, and the overhead costs, I'm really not sure, but let's go back in time. Let's go to the month before in July. Here's what I do know. Last month in July, I had total overhead costs, total for the whole factory, $500,000. In addition, my skilled craftspeople worked 10,000 hours and I used my machines a total of 25,000 hours. Okay, well, who cares about my direct labor people? Because they're not part of my overhead. Who cares about my machines? Uh, well, it's this because I got to figure out how to assign that 500,000 total overhead. And so let's think about this a little bit. Let's say I've got two projects going. I got this big fancy dining room table made out of oak going on and I got 15 workers gathered around doing various things. And I get a little child's desk project at the other side of the factory over there. There are two workers there working on that one. Which one of those two projects, the big dining room table project here or the little child's desk project over there, which one of those two is going to consume more overhead costs? Well, where there's more workers. So one way to think of assigning the overhead costs is just to say, okay, as a rough estimate, if you got more worker hours, you ought to be assigned more overhead. Or if we say, well, it's not worker hours, not direct labor hours, it's machine hours. The more you use the machines, the more overhead costs should be assigned. Well, that kind of makes a little bit of sense because the bigger a job is and the more involved it is, it creates more overhead costs. So that might be one way we could do this overhead. Now we have to use old information. We're going back to July, but it's better than nothing. It's better than paying for the overhead cost ourselves. So let's think about this. Perhaps we could say this. Listen, last month, the way it worked was we had $500,000 in total overhead cost, 10,000 in direct labor hours, our skilled craftspeople. So it was about $50 per direct labor hour. Now let's be careful about this number 50. Because how much are we paying those direct labor hour workers? We're actually paying them a wage of $30 a piece. This is something different. Roughly speaking, for every hour, one of my skilled craftspeople works on a project, a dining room table, or a child's desk, or a bookcase. For every one of those hours, they are consuming or requiring about $50 worth of overhead cost. The supervisor's got to come over. They're using electricity. The maintenance people have to come over. That's their share of their property taxes, about $50 per hour. It's not exact, but it's better than nothing. So that's one way that we can assign overhead to each individual project. You tell me how many direct labor hours the workers are gonna work on a certain project, and I'll tell you how much overhead should be assigned to that particular project. Or maybe we'll say, no, machine hours is the right way to do it. Last month, we had $500,000 of overhead and we used our machines a total of 25,000 hours. The more you use the machines, the more they're gonna break down, the more maintenance work is gonna to have to happen, the more the supervisors gonna to have to come over, the more electricity you're using. So maybe we can say machine hours is a better way to do this. And in that case, it'd be $20 per machine hour. If I make a plan for making this oak table and it's gonna require 200 hours of machine work, well then that's gonna create $20 of overhead per every machine hour, roughly speaking, based on last month's data. Or maybe there's some combination, a little bit of the overhead maybe is more directly related to direct labor hours. Maybe that's the part about the supervisors. The more workers I've got, then the more the supervisor cost should be assigned to a project. 
or maybe some of the machine hours. The more I use the machines, then the more electricity that I use, the more maintenance cost there's going to be. So some combination. This could get quite complex, but you see the basic idea. We've got to do something. The overhead cost has to be assigned to individual projects, that child's desk, that bookcase, this oak table, on some rational basis. Can we do it in proportion to the amount of skilled craftspeople hours, but some proportion of the amount of machine hours? We've got to do something. Well, let's do it on the basis of direct labor hours. So direct materials, $1,000. Direct labor, $900. And overhead, well, we got 30 hours of direct labor work. And we said, roughly speaking, based on what happened last month, that it's about $50 of overhead costs are created for every hour that my workers work on a job. Remember, it's not what I pay them, but it's the amount of overhead cost that they create through doing their work. 30 hours times $50 per hour, that's another $1,500. So I could say that the total cost of this table is $3,400. Just add up the three, 1,000 plus 900 plus 1,500. Now look at those three numbers. One of them, we're not really sure about. Two of them, we know for sure. How about the direct materials? Yeah, you can estimate that pretty closely. How much wood are you going to use? How about the direct labor? You've had some experience with your workers. You know how long it's going to take them to make a project like this. And you know how much you're paying them, $30 per hour. It's the overhead that we're not so sure about. So let's try a different way to do it. Let's assign the overhead based on machine hours, based on how much we use the machines. That's how overhead gets created. Well, the direct materials is the same, $1,000. Direct labor is the same, $900. If we base the overhead on machine hours, this particular oak table job is gonna require 200 hours of using our machines. And we decided based on data that happened last month that we create about $20 of overhead for every hour we use our machines. So 200 machine hours times $20 of overhead created per every hour we use our machines, that's $4,000. 1,000 plus 900 plus 4,000, that's 5,900. Now stop, because you might say, well, wait a second. Why don't you just wait until the end of August so you can figure out more current data based on the August data? Well, you could do that. It would still be an estimate. Plus, you can't say to your customer, listen, I really can't tell you how much it's going to cost to make your table and therefore I can't set a reasonable price because it's not the end of the month. You're going to have to come back at the end of the month and then I can tell you. What's your customer going to say? Your customer says, listen, if you can't quote me a price, now I'll go to one of your competitors. This is another example of good managerial accounting being a competitive tool. If I can understand my costs well enough so that I can get an estimate of the cost of the direct materials, direct labor and overhead, bam, right now on August 17th when the customer comes in, if I can do that right now, then I can quote them a price. And that gives me a chance to get this job. Here's the problem, though. I got two different costs here, depending on how I assign the overhead. I got 3,400 and I got 5,900. Which is the right cost? What does it cost to produce this table? Is it 3,400, where we assign the overhead based on the proportion of direct labor hours, skill, craftspeople usage? Is it $5,900, where we assign the overhead based on how intensively we use the machines? Or is it something else, some combination of the two or something else entirely? Okay, well, what difference does it make? Well, it makes a huge difference. First of all, let's say that the number is 5,900 and the customer comes in and says, I'll give you 5,000 for the table. Well, you do your calculations and you say, no, I won't accept a price of 5,000 because if I do that, I'm gonna lose money. I compute my cost to be 5,900. In fact, if my cost really is 5,900, what I will suggest to the customer is, why don't you go to my competitor down the street? Because if I can get my competitor to do this job for $5,000, what I'm pretty sure that it's gonna cost them $5,900 to do it, 
I can help drive my competitor into bankruptcy. Now, that would not be a nice thing to do, but hey, it's business. But what if, and you listen to me closely, what if the real cost, what if the right way to assign overhead is by direct labor hours, suggesting that the real cost is 3,400? But I don't know that. I mistakenly think that I should be assigning overhead based on machine hours. So I mistakenly think that my cost is 5,900. Customer says, I'll pay you 5,000. Do you mistakenly think, based on your incorrect assignment of overhead cost, that wow, it cost me 5,900 to do it, you're offering to pay me 5,000, forget about it. But in reality, if the overhead should be assigned based on direct labor hours, the real cost is only 3,400. If you tell your customer to go away, you're sending away profit. They're willing to pay you 5,000 to give them something that only costs you 3,400 to make. So should we make this table or not? Yeah. It makes a big difference how we assign the overhead. And at what price should we sell the table? If we don't understand our costs, we don't know how to intelligently make our prices. And if we don't know how to set our prices intelligently and our competitor down the street does know how to estimate their costs appropriately and so can set their prices appropriately, our competitor is going to beat us. Cost flows and product costing. There are three kinds of costs in a production setting. Direct materials, that's easy. Direct labor, the skilled craftspeople, that's easy. It's this overhead thing. How much overhead should be assigned to each project? That's where it gets hard. That's where the art is involved. We can have an entire course, a series of courses, a year-long seminar on just this one thing. But you can see why it's a crucial issue. Another illustration of the use of managerial accounting is break-even analysis. One huge benefit of financial analysis in general and break-even analysis in particular is that it can counteract the natural over-optimism of entrepreneurs. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that accounting numbers can make all your decisions for you. You, in the end, still have to make the judgment call. Should we do the charity banquet or not? Should we open the scuba shop in the mall or not? Should we build a new restaurant in this location or not? You've got to make that business decision. But the accounting numbers, in this case, the break-even analysis, that can at least help you identify ideas that are really bad, that have no hope of working. And also help you identify ideas that are almost certain to work. And most decisions you're going to find, well, we got to use our judgment here. But at least the accounting analysis has helped you structure it a little bit and has forced you to gather data so that you're not making a decision based on just your optimistic view of life as an entrepreneur. You're using a little bit of data, bringing you down to earth just a little bit break-even analysis, a very simple, intuitive way to understand business decisions. Budgeting is another important topic in managerial accounting. Remember, managerial accounting, detailed stuff that we use every day inside a business. Not the kind of thing that we're going to reveal to people outside. It's the kind of stuff that we're going to be using inside. Budgeting, making a systematic plan on paper so we can see problems before they arise in the real world. Because budgets help you see problems in advance and probably solve them in advance before they ever actually happen. So it's uh, how much excitement do you want in your life? If you want to have your excitement in other ways, do budgets. That'll allow your business, your personal affairs to run more smoothly so then you can save your excitement for other things. So what are the benefits of a cash budget in particular in this case and a budget in general? Well, when you budget things, it really means you're running a simulation of how your company is going to operate for the next few months. And you say, well, okay, we need to make advance arrangements for this. We need to arrange that loan 
but well in advance of when we actually have to make it. The budget allows you to have realistic targets. A budget gives you hope. This is especially important for startup companies because startup companies have some lean times. They burn through a lot of cash, for example. It's nice to have a cash budget. The budget creates the light at the end of the tunnel. And the budget helps us identify and solve problems on paper before they ever happen in the real world. There are huge benefits to budgeting for all organizations, for businesses, and for you and me personally. There are four flavors of accounting, standard bookkeeping to gather all the information, financial accounting, reporting to outsiders, managerial accounting, reporting inside the company, the detailed information that we need to make daily decisions, and finally, income taxes. Let's talk more about income taxes. Income tax accounting is its own specialized field. There are elements of income tax compliance. Let's make sure that we're obeying the law. There are elements of income tax planning. Let's make sure that we structure our affairs so that we don't have to pay any more tax than we need to. And for you and me, there's just the element of filling out our tax form. Well, here in this discussion, we'll talk about some general principles with respect to income taxes. We won't drill down to the level of actually filling out your tax form. That would be a discussion for another day. But let's make sure that we understand the general concepts, the basic terms with respect to income tax accounting. To facilitate our discussion of income tax systems, I've designed a very simple income tax system here that contains the important elements of all income tax systems around the world. So in this simple system, for income from zero to $50, you don't pay any income tax at all. You're allowed to make that money tax-free in this governmental tax system that I've designed. For all income over $50, you got to pay a tax rate of 50%. So this is going to make our calculation simple. So again, this has all the elements of the tax system in the United States and in the European Union and in Hong Kong and China and everywhere else. So we'll use this to represent tax systems around the world. So we'll answer these questions. Under this tax system, how much tax would you pay if you made $50? What if you made $51? What if you made $100? Let's do the computations in each one of those three cases. If you make $50, you don't pay any income tax under this system. First $50 are tax-free, so that's a pretty easy to computation to do. All right, but what if you make $51? Okay, the first $50, still you pay no tax. That $51 dollar, you're going to pay the rate of 50%, so your total tax that you're going to pay is 50 cents. This illustrates the important notion of the tax bracket. You'll sometimes hear people bemoan the fact that, oh, I got a raise, so now I'm in the next tax bracket. Well, that's kind of a naive comment, and I'll show you why. The tax bracket is this. The first tax bracket in this case is from zero to $50, and the rate on that first $50 is always zero, no matter how much you ever make. So when you make the 51st dollar, when you go into the next tax bracket where income is taxed at the rate of 50%, that is not applied retroactively. You don't have to go back and pay the 50% rate on the first 50. That first $50 is never taxed. The rate is always zero. That's the first tax bracket. The second tax bracket in this simple example is everything over $50. In that second tax bracket, yes, the tax rate is 50%. But let's think, should we be sad that we got a raise in this case? We went from making $50 to $51. Does that cost us any money? Well, no, it does not. Because when I make $50, I have the $50 and I don't pay any tax. If I make $51, yes, it's true that I now have to pay half of that $51 in tax. So I have to pay 50 cents in tax, but I get to keep the other half. 
So if I make $51, I have the first 50 tax-free and I get to keep half of the 51st dollar, so I have $50.50. Going to the next tax bracket doesn't cost you any money. It just means you have to pay a different rate on the extra income that you're going to make. So don't be afraid of making more money and going into the next tax bracket. That's a cause for celebration. Under this simple tax system, how much tax do you pay if you make $100? Well, again, the first 50 is never taxed at all, so the tax that you pay is zero. The second 50 is taxed at the rate of 50%, so you're going to pay a total of $25 tax if your taxable income is $100. This allows us to discuss two important concepts, the average tax rate and the marginal tax rate. The average tax rate is simply the tax that you owe, $25 in this case, divided by how much you made, $100 in this case. $25 divided by $100, that's 25%. That's the average tax rate. And it's a very intuitive notion. What's the average tax rate for all taxpayers in the United States? Oh, it's somewhere between 17 and 20%, the average tax rate, the tax that they have to pay divided by the amount that they make. So 25% average tax rate in this case, if you make $100. Economists say that a more important rate than the average tax rate is the marginal tax rate. What's the rate you're going to pay on the next dollar that you make? And the reason that's an important concept from an economic standpoint is that's the rate that I have in mind when I'm considering, should I put in some extra time and make more money? Because on the extra money that I make, I'm going to have to pay the marginal tax rate, the tax rate on the next dollars that I'm going to make. I'm an entrepreneur with good business ideas. Should I work hard and devote my time and energy to starting that business and making money? Because if I start that business and make extra money, I'm going to have to pay the marginal tax rate, 50% in this case. So the marginal rate, that's the number that people have in mind as they consider whether they should work harder. The average tax rate just takes all the elements of the tax system and what's the average amount of your income that you pay. Marginal tax rate, what rate am I going to pay on the next dollar that I make? Average tax rate, just how much tax do I pay given all the complexities and tax brackets in the system divided by how much I made. In this case, if you make $100, your average rate is 25%. Marginal rate is 50%. And that marginal rate is the rate that you look at as you consider, should I work hard, start my own business, put in some extra hours to make a little extra money? You might be asking yourself, so why exclude some income from taxation? In this simple system, why let people make that $50 without paying any tax at all? Well, the concept here is that there is a fixed cost to living. I have to have a certain amount of money to put a roof over my head and put food on the table and clothes on my back. So let's not tax any of that money because those are the essentials of life. Once I've got those things taken care of, okay, now the government can start to take some tax from me. So that's the very simple and appropriate, in my opinion, a concept behind this notion of allowing some income not to be taxed. And this is true in all income tax systems around the world. There's a fixed cost to living. If I take money away from a person who's not making very much, they're going to have to give up some important things. Their food won't be so good. The quality or quantity won't be as good as it otherwise would be. So let's let them keep that money. Let's instead collect tax money from those who are making a surplus because they're not giving up the necessities of life. So that's why some income is always excluded from taxation in all income tax systems around the world. Another phrase that you might have heard is progressive tax system. What's a progressive tax system? Well, this simple tax system that we've been talking about is a progressive tax system. Let me show you why. If you make $50, as we saw, you pay no tax, so your average tax rate is 0%. If you make $100, we did the calculations and saw that 
you pay tax of $25, so your average tax rate is 25%. In this system, if you were to make $1,000, the first 50 is not taxed at all. The second 950 is taxed at a 50% rate, so you'd pay $475 in tax. Your average tax rate would be 47.5%. So what you see is the average tax rate goes up the more money you make. That is a progressive tax system. And all income tax systems around the world are progressive systems. The more you make, the higher your average tax rate. And again, that makes sense because people who are making more money can afford to pay more tax because there won't be deny the necessities of life. So the more money you make, the higher your average tax rate. I've been careful here to say that income tax systems around the world are progressive. Not all tax systems are progressive. For example, the sales tax is an example of a regressive tax. The less money you make, the more percent of your income you're going to pay as sales tax. And why is that? If you don't make very much money, most of the money that you do make is used on buying goods and services on which you will frequently have to pay sales tax. Whereas if you make lots of money, a lot of the money that you make is going to be put in investments and other things where you're not buying goods and services and are not paying sales tax. So the sales tax is an example of a regressive tax. The lower your income, the higher your percentage of income that is paid in the form of sales tax. But income tax systems around the world are progressive, just as we've seen here. What is the impact of a tax deduction in our simple tax system? So let's say you make $100. Remember, the first 50 is never taxed. The second 50 would be taxed at the 50% rate, so you're going to pay $25 in tax total. Now, let's say that of that $100 you make, you decide to spend $10 in a way that the government favors. Perhaps you spend that $10 as a charitable contribution, or you spend that $10 paying mortgage interest on your home. So the government says, yeah, we want to encourage that behavior. That's a good way to spend $10. Then you're going to get a tax deduction for that $10. So how does that enter into the payment of your taxes? Well, now you have to compute your taxable income. You made $100, but 10 of that you spent in a special way, which is tax deductible. So your taxable income is only $90. So the first 50 is still tax-free. Now the second 40 is taxed at the 50% rate. So you're going to pay tax of $20. So you see here that the tax deduction of $10 reduces your income taxes from $25 initially to $20 after you subtract the tax deduction. Again, what are tax deductions? They are expenditures by individuals that the government favors for charitable contributions, for investing in your IRA or your or 401k plan, for paying interest on your home mortgage. There are also business tax deductions. If I have a business and I make $100, but then I use $10 of that to pay wages to my employees or pay electricity on my building or pay property taxes on my building. Any legitimate business expense, that's also a tax deduction. So there are really two kinds of tax deductions. Tax deductions, legitimate business expenses, and tax deductions, spending by individuals that the government wants to encourage. Charitable contributions, 401k investments, payment of interest on the mortgage of your home. And we see that what a tax deduction does is reduces your taxes. Now you say, well, that's great. I should get the largest mortgage and pay the most interest that I possibly can because I'll get all these tax deductions. No, no, no. Let's be careful here. In order to get this $10 tax deduction, I had to spend $10 on my home mortgage interest. I had to spend $10 donated to a charity. So that $10 is gone. 
Yes, the pain is eased a little bit by the fact that I now get to reduce the taxes that I pay to the government by $5, but there's still a cost. I spent $10 for charity or whatever else in order to save $5 in taxes. So you got to make sure still that you want to spend the $10, but the government is easing the pain by giving you a deduction for that $10. So that's a tax deduction. How about a tax credit? What's the difference between a tax deduction and a tax credit? Let's go back to our same example. You make $100 in our system. The first 50, you pay no tax. The second 50, you pay the rate of 50%, so you're going to pay $25 tax. Great. Now let's say that you spend 10 of those dollars in a very favored way, according to the government. Maybe you spent the $10 increasing the energy efficiency of your home. You put solar panels on your roof. You did something that the government really wants to encourage. In this case, they're going to give you a tax credit. Again, this is determined by the government through a governmental process. We're going to give you a $10 tax credit. So how's that difference from a tax deduction? Well, you compute your tax. You pay no tax on the first $50. You pay a rate of 50% on that second $50. So you pay $25 in tax. But the government says, if it's a tax credit, you spent that money so well, you spent it just the same way we would have. So what we're going to say is you can reduce that directly from your taxes. You owe us $25 in taxes, just reduce that $10, that tax credit, so you only have to pay us $15. This is evidence that the government really approves of the way that you spent that $10. I've reduced my tax directly by the whole $10 tax credit. So which is better, a tax deduction or a tax credit? Well, we see that the $10 tax credit in this case reduces my income taxes from $25 down to $15. That same $10, if it's a tax deduction, reduces my taxes only from $25 down to $20. Tax deduction reduces my taxes by $5. Tax credit reduces my taxes by $10. So if somebody gives you your choice, do you want a $10 tax deduction or a $10 tax credit? You show them how wise you are. You take the tax credit. Let's talk about the two different kinds of income out there. There's ordinary income, and there's capital gains income. Ordinary income is just like it sounds. It's ordinary income. The wages that you get from the job that you have, uh, your salary. Let's say you've got a savings account in the bank, you earn interest, that's ordinary income. Dividends, you've got some investments, you get some dividends, that's all ordinary income. Capital gains income is when you make an investment. Let's say you buy a stock portfolio and hopefully you're gonna buy low and sell high. Let's say I buy at $1,000 and sell at $1,300, that $300 that it went up, that's called capital gains income. So there's ordinary income, wages, salary, interest, dividends, and there's capital gains income, income from investments. Worldwide, and particularly in the United States, capital gains income is typically taxed at a lower rate. Now we could get in a long philosophical discussion about whether this is right or wrong. Let me just give you the rationale on both sides. The reason that capital gains income is typically taxed at a lower rate is one, governments want to encourage people to invest, invest in businesses and invest in portfolios for savings purposes. So to encourage that will tax any capital gains income as a lower rate. In addition, people say, listen, if I'm gonna invest money in, in a stock portfolio, I already paid tax on that money when I originally made it. Are you gonna tax me again when I invest it? So that's the rationale in favor of taxing capital gains at a lower rate. On the other side, hey, income is income. If I work through the sweat of my brow and make money, I should pay tax on that. 
if I invest my money and my investments go up in value, I should have to pay tax on that. There's no difference. It's just a different way to make income. Capital gains income should be taxed at the same rate as anything else. Those are the arguments on both sides. The fact is that in most jurisdictions around the world, capital gains income is taxed at a lower rate. In fact, in some places, capital gains income is not taxed at all. In the United States, ordinary income is taxed at one rate. Capital gains income is taxed at a lower rate. Let's go back to our simple tax system. For income from zero to $50, you don't pay any tax at all. That's the first tax bracket. For income above $50, the tax rate is this. If it's ordinary income, you pay a rate of 50%. If it's capital gains income, you pay a rate of 20%. So we're introducing the notion of ordinary income and capital gains income, two different rates. So how much income tax would you pay if you made $100? Let's think about this. If the $100 that you make is ordinary income, meaning you just went to your job and that's your wage or that's your salary or you had some interest that you made on a savings account or dividends that you got from investments, that $100 in ordinary income is going to be taxed zero on the first $50 and at the rate of 50% on the second $50, so $25 tax, the same thing that we saw before, the ordinary income. If, on the other hand, this $100 income that you made is capital gains income, you invested $100 in a mutual fund and it went up to $200, so it doubled in value. Awesome. I'd like to see that. Invest $100, it doubles in value and goes up to $200. That $100 that you make in capital gains, the increase in the value is taxed the capital gains rate. So the first 50, not taxed at all. It's a 0% tax bracket. The second 50 would be taxed at the capital gains rate of 20% in our simple system here. So you'd only pay $10 tax. So if somebody gives you your choice, do you want to classify this income as ordinary income and pay $25 tax or capital gains income and pay $10 tax, which would you prefer to do? Well, if it's legal, you'd prefer to pay the $10. And here is where a lot of the complex tax shelter arrangements arise. You've heard of tax shelters. Tax shelters take on many forms. One form is doing this. Structuring your affairs so that income can be classified as capital gains income rather than ordinary income for obvious reasons. Capital gains income is taxed at lower rates. And lots of things, both legitimate and shady, have been done to create tax shelters to change the nature of income from ordinary income to capital gains income. So when you hear discussions of tax shelters and this and that, this is one thing that people are talking about, changing the nature of income from ordinary income to capital gains income because capital gains income is typically taxed at lower rates. People prefer to have any income they make classified as capital gains income, if at all possible. Let me summarize our discussion of income taxes. First, there's the notion of the tax bracket. Income is taxed in chunks. The first part of income in almost every tax system around the world is not taxed at all. So that's a 0% tax bracket. And your income after that is chopped up into pieces. This piece is taxed at one rate. The more money you make, the higher different pieces are taxed, the higher rate. So that's the notion of the tax bracket. And the important thing to remember is this. Income in the low tax brackets is never taxed at a higher rate ever. In our simple system, that first $50 is never taxed at anything other than a 0% tax rate. Same thing in the United States. The income that's excluded from taxation under your personal exemptions and the standard deduction is never taxed. It's in a 0% tax bracket. So don't be afraid of making more money 
and going up in the next tax bracket because that first amount of income is never taxed at higher rates. We also discussed the notions of the average tax rate and the marginal tax rate. The average tax rate, how much tax do you pay divided by how much do you make? Average tax rate in the United States for individuals, somewhere between 17 and 20%, depending on who you are. But that's the average for everybody across the United States. Marginal tax rates, on the other hand, that's the rate that you're going to pay on the next dollar that you make. And economists say that that marginal rate is a very important rate because that's the rate that people have in mind as they consider, should I work harder and make more money because it's that marginal rate that I'm going to have to pay. We saw the difference between a tax deduction and a tax credit. A tax deduction, if you spend money on a tax deductible item, you don't have to pay tax on that particular item. So we saw it in our example if you have a $10 tax deduction, that's actually going to save you $5 in income taxes. So the government says, thank you for spending your money in that way. You don't have to pay tax on that money. A tax credit, on the other hand, is so favored by the government that the government will say, if you spend $10 in a certain way, that's the same as our spending that $10. You just keep that money. You don't have to pay any tax at all. If you have a $10 tax credit, your taxes go down by the whole $10. A tax credit is more valuable to you in a tax sense than a tax deduction. We discussed the difference between ordinary income and capital gains income. The most important thing from a tax standpoint is capital gains income is taxed to the lower rate. Ordinary income is most of the income with which you and I are familiar. Wages, salaries, interest on savings accounts, and so forth. Capital gains income, if you invest in a stock portfolio and it goes up, the increased amount it's called capital gains income, and you typically pay a lower income tax rate on capital gains. Therefore, many tax shelters are designed to classify income, not as ordinary income, but as capital gains income. Overriding everything with respect to income taxes is this. There are precise rules set down by the government where you live, and your objective in income tax accounting is following those rules so that you comply with the law. You want to pay all the tax that you owe. It's certainly a legitimate thing to plan your affairs to pay the minimum tax allowable under the law, but you want to make sure that you obey the rules and pay the tax that you owe.